This is the J. Scott Outdoors podcast on Western big game hunting and fishing brought to you by GoHunt.com Insider. Research faster, hunt more. Go to GoHunt.com forward slash insider and join today. I'm your host, Jay Scott, and I live and breathe hunting and fishing, spending half the year in the field experiencing God's creation. I hope you'll enjoy hearing about our adventures. Welcome to the Jay Scott Outdoors podcast. We have a really special guest today. We have Trevor Marks from Nevada. I believe you're from Ely, Nevada, correct, Trevor? Yes, Jay, that's correct. Uh, Trevor has uh, grown up in the guide business um, over in Nevada and uh, with his dad, and I'm going to have him go into giving the background on on uh, his hunting background and such, but uh, these guys are known for killing some of the biggest uh, bucks and bulls. They have incredible mule deer hunting and, and elk hunting. Uh, in Nevada, and um, they've killed a bunch of 400 bulls, a bunch of state records. Um, it looks like it's a family affair over there, so I'm excited to hear about Nevada uh, and um, get to know Trevor a little bit and, and see what his guide service uh, has to offer and, and get to learn a little bit about him. So, Trevor, how you doing today? Good. How are you? Oh, just fine. And um, so I want to start out by getting your background a little bit in hunting and guiding and, and uh, tell me a little bit of a bio on yourself. All right. Yeah, well, I've, you know, I'm 33 right now, so I've basically been hunting my whole life. Early, my dad and uncles, they were trappers and they trapped, you know, a lot of bobcats. And that's kind of what got us out in the field. And they've always been hunters, but being out a lot you know we've come to find a lot of bulls and they shed hunt a lot so back you know or in the early days the guys referred to them as the marx brothers like if you want to hunt elk you know get a hold of the marx brothers some guys know where they're at just from being out you know in the mountains all the time trapping shed hunting and what have not so anyway they uh got a hold of you know a few guys around and took them out and early on in 93 they got a hold of the governor tag holder at the time. Anyway, he killed a bull we'd been watching. We had a few sheds off him called Benedict. And that bull was just an exceptional bull. He went from like a 315 bull to a 348 to a 385 to a 400. And when they killed him at 400 gross, he was aged at six and a half years old. Just phenomenal genetics on him. So in then 94... So he's the new state record right then in 393 net typical. Then in 94, the guy got a hold of us again, or my dad and them, and they killed a bull we'd been watching called Squiggly. And he ended up netting 403 with five inches broke off his main beam. So he's the new state record that year. And that year was my first year. I was 12. And my first year applying, I drew an elk tag. My dad and them, you know, been putting in for years and never drew, and I drew that. And but at the time when we killed that bull in 94, it was in the rut, you know, and they moved quite a ways from the rut to winter. Anyway, that winter time, we found out where he wintered. We found a couple of sheds off him. So ironically, potentially that could have been a bull that I could have killed at, you know, 12 years old being the new state record. But it didn't happen and we still got it. So that was good on that end. And then in 96, we, you know, went ahead and, Got my dad got his own master guide license and that year we killed a new state record again. Ended up grossing 442 and netting 414. And then from there on out, just 
you know, in the elk business quite a bit. That's our main focus due to the size of the elk. A lot of our guys take their time off during that because we, you know, obviously need more guys to help pack them. So that's our biggest focus. You know, last year we killed 27 bulls in Nevada, three of them in the 390s. You know, the biggest ones right around 391 inches net. I killed with my bow. You killed it personally. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, yeah, I was looking on your website and, you know, I've always heard of the Marx Brothers and then, you know, I follow you on Instagram and you have a fantastic Instagram page. Um, why don't you tell me what your Instagram handle is, Trevor? Uh, it's just a Bull Ridge Guide Service. Yeah, you've got a bunch of followers and um, you have some unbelievable photos. Uh, going back to the elk, if that's you guys' specialty, uh, so as far as when you started going out with your dad and uncles and stuff, I mean, were you just four, five, six years old, just, just a little guy? Yeah. Um, I caught my first bobcat at five. You know, I <laughs> kind of picked out the tree. Obviously I couldn't set the trap myself, but my dad did it, you know, and that kind of got me going. But, and then another drawing I have of a bobcat tracks and going to a trap at age three that my grandma saved. That's incredible. So you're a full-time guide in the state of Nevada with a primary focus on elk and mule deer. I know you guys also chase lions and uh, run dogs and uh, do, do sheep hunting. Uh, uh, what, if you had to say, out of all the animals, is your favorite to hunt and guide? Well, I mean, there's nothing like, you know, killing a, a giant bull. I mean, you've put in the time, you've watched him. You've had close calls and to finally get it done, there's just, you know, no emotion or feeling that you get that could describe it. It's, you know, so probably elk, lion had a close second just watching the dogs work and, you know, just how smart and agile they are. It's pretty amazing what, you know, a lion could do. Absolutely. Yeah, it it, it really is. Um, and the adventure of it, too, you know, the lion hunting with the adventure of all of that. Uh, and getting out and, you know, stay in shape and keep your legs stretched is uh, probably a big uh, contributing factor to liking the lion hunting as well, isn't it? Yeah, and it's, like you said, it's a huge adventure that a lot of people, you know, are misconstrued with a lion. Oh, you walk up to a tree and shoot it, and, you know, they don't understand what's between point A and C, you know. I mean, that B of following up and down, circling ledges, you know, everything you can imagine and pretty much where you don't want to go. That's where that lion's going to take you up over that hill. And like you said, a lot of people don't until you see it, you know, really understand it. Sure. Sure. Um, going back to the elk, uh, what is your forecast for 2015 season, uh, coming up? I believe the guide portion of the draw, uh, was just fulfilled a day or two ago. And I believe the general season, uh, regular draw is, is uh, still imminent. Um, it's still available to apply. Uh, talk to me a little bit about the forecast. Uh, what do conditions look like? I know it's a little hard to predict being that we're, we're here in um, mid-March. Uh, what's it looking like out there, Trevor? It looks really good this year. and We had a super mild winter and what we've learned over the years, that's their biggest you know, upside to their growth is a mild winter versus a hard winter where you have a lot of snow for a lot of moisture late. But 
that takes so much out of them to make it through them hard winters that they don't grow as good. And, and so from a moisture standpoint, uh, you know, it's been mild, but have you gotten some storms? Uh, you know, obviously your bulls are dropping right now, or if they haven't already dropped, they're, they're getting real close to dropping. Uh, do you have green feed on the ground yet, or is it still co- too cold at night for, for it to start greening up? No, it's pretty green right now, you know, on the north sides, you know, where that moisture kept and starting to melt off, and that's where it's looking the best. And that's what really helps our bulls out during the summer is they're up so high it's still green pretty much regardless of obviously more moisture is better but even with the little moisture we have it's still green and they're still putting on inches regardless yeah um are you finding brown antlers on the ground and how if they have been dropping how long have most of the bulls um been on the ground how how, how long has, have the antlers been on the ground yeah they've started dropping now you know you've probably got maybe half that have shed now and you know still still some packing so that part of it's just you know kicking in right now we're just gearing up for that how is um nevada in its cycle uh you were telling me about some of the giant bulls that you guys have killed um has the have there been any tag increases or has the quality of elk uh, maintained a, a high quality or it, are you in a little bit of a lull now or is it as good as ever it's probably as good as ever right now. Um, back in about 2007 to 2009, they gave out quite a few tags, and that put a hurting on them. Our our average, you know, in when we're talking our rifle hunts, we don't have any early rifle hunts like Arizona or Utah. All of our rifle hunts are post-rut November till December. Mm-hmm. And in those, we're killing, you know, Try to kill 350 class net bulls, you know, to anything on up. And in that, them couple of years when it got pretty low, it was down to about, you know, 340s in there. Just Nevada's pretty easy to spot, you know, and that's how we do a lot of our hunting, just glass and spot and stock techniques. And, you know, even guys that, you know, you may not necessarily know how to judge, but if you can see a group of 10 bulls, you can pick out the biggest one, and that's generally the older one. Absolutely. And so your archery season, uh, it falls in September. Uh, what what are the dates typically for that archery hunt, and how have you guys historically done on those archery hunts, and, and how long is that season? Uh, that, that archery hunt is 21 days. It's September 25th till, or excuse me, August 25th till September 16th. So it starts out pretty early. And our bulls generally are still, you'll have a few of them ones that are by themselves at the start, and other ones are going pretty good. Bugling-wise? Yeah. And so say the last 10 days of the hunt from, you know, say the 5th till the, 16th or the 6th of the 16th is it just pretty much full tilt rutting yeah yeah they're going crazy and it's like i said a lot of a lot of bugling a lot of fighting um when we archery hunt we don't set water we pretty much just spot and stalk or um call you know we like to be mobile you know it's kind of mute sitting there waiting you know and not really knowing what's going on or what's coming we like to get out there and find the one we want and just stay on him until we get it done 
Absolutely. And how much of your success is knowing where bulls are from the year before or watching a particular bull, you know, year after year, and then finally deciding that he's big enough to go after him with, with a hunter, how much of, of knowing what's out there as far as inventory plays into your success as a, as an elk guide? Uh, it's a huge percentage. And most of it, like I said, is picking up sheds and kind of knowing, okay, yeah, this bull isn't as big as we thought, or he's bigger than we thought. So we know, you know, okay, this one's shedding. We got it said it's, you know, say just 380. So kind of gives us, you know, a goal as far as we know it, this type of class is in this hunt. So we're going to shoot for nothing smaller than, you know, that range that we're hunting. Sure. So a lot of times, will you have some of these big bulls that you kill? Will you have one side or the other for three, four, five years? I mean, it, is it pretty common to find their the match set or at least one side of those bulls that you may be chasing? Yeah, well, most of it is it will at least have at least an antler, you know, hopefully a couple sets, but it's getting pretty tough here as far as the pressure they're getting and the people we're getting competition yeah just you know yeah well i think anytime you know you have big giant anything i think it uh you know more and more people want to do it you know for our sport it's good and and for hunting it's good and um you know maintaining our 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 privilege to hunt and and what have you it's it's a uh, fantastic but i know as a guide uh sometimes having pressure and competition you know can be hard to deal with because maybe you've had a certain mountain to yourself for a long time and then all of a sudden uh you know competition shows up and I know as a guide myself you know it's it's sometimes hard to remember the big picture that we're all hunting and we're all just trying to to get our clients good animals uh would you agree with that yes definitely like I said it's you know frustrating when you you know have a spot and then now got two three other people in there and you're picking up you know just a third of the antlers but like i said it's a common goal we all have and to keep that right going you know as much as you don't want them there everyone wants the same thing yeah how much in picking up antlers um can you pretty much predict let's say main beams and points let's say you have a match set and you say the bull's 380 um how much does that play in? I mean, in Nevada, I assume it's fairly arid like Arizona. And can those antlers really vary in size from year to year going up and down? Or uh, when you measure a you know nice big 380 type shed, does it typically get bigger from there out? It's about half. I mean, like you have some bulls that just generally never get big. I mean, they stay 345 to 360 for five years, you know, and then you got other ones that'll go, like you, I was saying earlier, you know, grow 40 inches a year. How much of that do you think is genetics um, as far as just, you know, the super, super um, genetics on a certain bull, you know, the Shaquille O'Neal of, of elk, and how much of that do you think maybe is feed conditions and, and uh, other outside factors? I would probably say 80% of it's genetics. You know, the yeah. feed here, like I said, it's generally 
pretty green regardless. And a lot of them bulls that have smaller fists, you know, people like to say, well, they ran out of feed during that time of year, but you'll have the same, a bull that's feeding right next to him that has, you know, 15 inch fists. And that one's only got five. It's just the elk, you know, itself. Yeah. In general, um, does Nevada have, uh, you know, big back ends or short back ends, or does it vary from unit to unit or specifically unit to unit? You know, are there some units that, you know, they have big heavy bulls, but short points or, um, tell me a little bit about the different units you hunt and how the characteristics of antlers may be different than, uh, than other places. Um, the, the two units we, or not units, but the two hunt numbers, they have several units in them. Like unit 111 through 115 is all one hunt, but it's got, you know, five units. That one typically seems like they can put on more inches a year than the area down south that we hunt 221 through 223. Them ones down there don't seem to have the really long hook in fronts versus 111 to 115. But they still got, you know, big ones down there. It just seems these ones can put on more inches a year. And it's different type terrain, too. And up there, it's a lot rockier. And we're thinking, you know, a lot more minerals in the rocks are helping them milk versus down south where it's kind of lower, thicker type area. I understand. And so the units that are up north, primarily where you're where you live, they're not quite as arid as the 231 uh, down south. Is that what I'm understanding? Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, in the 231 down there, too, it seems like they have a lot of big five points that typically grow down there, you know, for whatever reason. Gotcha. And um, what is the biggest bowl that you guys as, as a as a whole guide service wise, what is the biggest bull you guys have harvested? It was Jim Cooks, and that was one we killed in '96. It was a new state record, and it grossed 442 and netted 414. And what was his configuration? Was that a typical, or a, I assume a non non typical? Yeah, he's a non typical, a seven by nine. And there were some discrepancies in the score. His original score is at 419. And when they took it to panel, he actually fell below their, they have some type of, you know, shrink factor, a magic number that only the Boone and Crockett panel scores know, and it fell below that, so he fell to that 414. Yeah, regardless, he sounds like an incredible bull. Um, did he have, like, extra points between his fourths and fifths, or did he did he have kickers, or what did he have? Yeah, he actually had a crown point on his left side, between you know his g4 and 5 an extra bez between his g2 and g3 a seven inch devil point and then a 11 inch typical seven on his left side just a beauty yeah that that's fantastic and then you shot a big bull yourself on the archery hunt um what day you know was it late in the season or early in the season when did you kill yeah second to the last day I killed him September 15th, and when I drew that tag, it was actually an alternate tag. So we, you know, the regular draw came out. We're looking through our draws, see what we have, and then none of us drew the archery hunt. So we're like, all right, you know, we'll start taking archery hunters in that area or that hunt. So we end up booking three archery hunters, and it wasn't until about a month later 
it come through an email from the fishing game that I was drawn as an alternate for that tag. So now we got that on top of it that I drew that. And now we have three other guys that take in that too. Wow. That put that put a little bit of a between a rock and a hard spot for your for your guide service, I'm sure. Yep, you know, and when I drew that tag I there was two bulls that, you know, I wanted to kill and anyway one of them we found him this year and I was hunting them and unfortunately a couple other people were too, but one of them had a rifle tag during that time. So I spent, he typically didn't come, you know, watching him over the years, he doesn't come into that area till later on in the rut when they start going good and they start spreading out a little more. So I figured, well, we got these first couple days, you know, a week or so to try to hunt these guys with my dad and our other sub guides and kill these guys bulls. So we did that and we killed three really good ones right off the start. One was 365, another one was 361, another one was 382. So we killed them, got them, you know, good bulls. And I just been looking around myself and finally, you know, later on that bull showed up. And like I said, unfortunately, some other people were there too. And it just didn't, wasn't in the cards. And I, with a bow, you just can't compete with a rifle so as hard as it was i knew that i had to go find you know a couple of these other bulls we've been watching because i wasn't going to kill a bull if i just sat there the whole time with that so i left and found this bull and looking at him the first night i actually had him close enough to get a shot but he had a smaller fifth on the side so i kind of passed and I was waiting there, and I heard him bugling above me, and I kind of snuck to the trees, and by this time, he was silhouetted on the skyline, and right then, I knew, I'm like, this thing's big, it's really big, you know, it's a lot bigger, and I was giving him a score, but still adding up the numbers, I, I couldn't come up with what I thought he was, and anyway, the second to the last day, he was there again, so I got down there, and snuck up on him 50 yards, he was better down, and you know, put a good shot on him. He went maybe a hundred yards and died. But when I got up to him, said I was in shock of how big he really was. And how big did he go, Trevor? He ended up grossing right around four hundred, netting three ninety one with a seven inch fifth. Oh wow! Yeah. So so um, what like how long were his main beams? Fifty nine. Wow. Yeah, I helped in close to thirty inches of mass, and you know. 18 20 inch fronts so it it put them up there how clean uh it was a straight six by six but with with a weak g5 on which side on the left side left side and what when did you kill this september 15th of this last year yeah oh fantastic um what you mentioned something there i want to talk a little bit about field judging um, what's kind of average mass for, you know, those big, say 375 plus bulls, what are you seeing as far as mass on per side or your total measurement, uh, for a, you know, a general rule of thumb, what, what do you plug in when you're trying to field judge a bull? Usually around 28. Okay. You know, a lot of our bulls, their G1 and G2 don't grow tight together, so versus a bull that'll grow them real close together will get close to an inch and a half to maybe two inches more versus, you know, a split brow and beds. Sure. 
So the, the, one of the things I look for in judging bulls is you obviously want quite a bit of spacing between your points, but you bring up a good point in the fact that when the, the uh, distance between your G1 and G2 is spread out, you lose a lot of that webbing where your first circumference measurement being taken between your G1 and G2, if, you're, if their first and seconds are spread out, you're not going to get some of that webbing. Is that what you're kind of alluding to? Yeah. Yeah, definitely hurt, hurts them on that, you know. And when you're looking at bulls, and let's stick with the, you know, 375 plus, um, what's a general rule of thumb do you use for main beams, spread? Um, obviously, mass, you've said 28, so you're looking at about 56 on your mass plug-in. Uh, what are some of the other things that you're looking for? I mean, obviously, if we can find ones with bigger fists, you know, that helps. But it's hard to find one that's got got it all, you know, the big fists and big fronts. More yeah, often yeah. than not, we see ones with, you know, bigger fronts than bigger fists to score that 375 type. And um, how much does, uh, in your mind... As far as what's the most important ingredient for big bowls? Is it main beams? Is it points? Is it mass? Or is it spread? Um, beams can definitely help out a lot. You know, like I said, if you get, you know, like say mine just round up to 60 versus 50 inch beams, you're getting 20 inches just right there. Yeah. You know, so that, that definitely can help a lot versus ones that got, you know, seem to be longer points but shorter beams and they get outscored. Yeah, I think um, I always, you know, really try and make sure that the the points are very long to me in order for a bull to be, you know, big. It's got to have long points. And then, like you said, secondly, uh, I think main beam is is the, the, the close second to having really long points. I mean, it's rare to have a, you know, bull over 375 that has short points, but you can still have a bull over 375 that has long points but short beams um, but it's rare to have a bull over 375 that has you know short points um, so point length in my mind is number one and then beams like you say is number two and then you know quite honestly mass and spread I'd have to give mass um, a little bit of an, an edge over spread but what kind of uh, mass or excuse me what kind of spread typically are most of your, you know, 375 bulls, what number do you plug in there? They're usually only between, you know, around 39 to 41. Yeah, I mean, I I think, you know, I, I haven't hunted Nevada, but I think you can attest to this or, or disagree if you like. I think a lot of people, you know, think that bulls are wider than they are. And, you know, to me, Anything much over 40 for Arizona standards, you know, that's a pretty wide bull. I, I very rarely plug in more than 40 inches when I'm trying to calculate a bull score. Um, is Nevada pretty similar to that? Yeah, it's very similar. And like I said, most of the stuff we kill is that between 37 to 40. And like you said, if you get over 40, that's pretty wide. You know, over 42 is getting, you know, to be really wide and 45s you know, pretty much unheard of. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, um, what kind of vegetation, uh, you know, in the summer, let's shift a little bit of our talk to, uh, summer scouting, uh, where, you know, 
not specifically, but where, what are you looking for as far as summer scouting, uh, as far as trying to find those bachelor herd of bulls and, and then maybe as, as the season transitions into fall, into September, uh, do they move off of a certain feed or area to, to somewhere else? Um, talk about that a little bit. No, just from what, you know, we've kind of seen, they pretty much eat the same stuff all year long. It just depends on where it's at during that time. You know, a lot of open meadows, you know, elk, they like to be out in the open. You know, they feed in the open. There's a lot more grass for them to eat in the open versus, you know, really thick cover. So typically they'll be there, you know, first thing early morning, you know, towards the later evenings and hit the trees to bed down in the midday. But any time in the summer that we can find a good water source, you'll know that they'll be fairly close to that and just glassing a lot of green open slopes. Yeah, and then um, ha uh, Trevor, do your bulls move quite a bit from summer to the rutting grounds? In Arizona, we have bulls, you know, that move 15, 18, 20 miles from where they may summer. Uh, you know, for three months, they may be within, you know, you could basically throw a blanket over them. And then it seems like around that, you know, September 1st, or, or really once they shed, uh, you know, say 10th or 15th of August, uh, depending on their size and maturity, it seems like they can just take off on a walk and, you know, move to the rutting grounds. Is that similar in Nevada? Yeah, yeah. We um, The furthest one we know of that we picked his sheds up, and that was the old state record, we picked his sheds up, you know, that winter to where he we killed him in the um rut was close to 30 miles that's unbelievable and did you have a sense from watching him from year to year uh that he was going to make that move or did he make that move and it kind of shocked you guys yeah he kind of made that move first you know and kind of shocked us on that because we really didn't we had the set for the year before but didn't notice him the year before in the rut you know so when we finally found out where he was the year we killed him it was you know, pretty remarkable to make that, you know, that trek because they're passing other places where other bulls are rutting, other cows, you know. Yeah, and Trevor, in your mind, what do you think causes a bull to, to, to walk by other elk to go rut in a specific spot? And the second question is, do you see bulls year after year that that bull's going to show up and rut right here? And then, you know, sure enough, there he is. He shows right up. Yeah. Why they do that, I'm not really sure. Some people think maybe they were born there. I I don't know. You know, that's a question that I can't answer, but they do. It's weird that they do that. Just like another place that these two bulls, I filmed them in the summer there. I mean, you know, feeding right beside each other. One of them stayed there to rut, and the other one crossed the valley, you know, about 8 to 12 miles and rutted over there. So really no rhyme or reason, and you've seen it go both ways where bulls you're watching will stay home and, and uh, rut right there, and then just uh, you've got those other bulls that will just travel, and maybe it's just in their personality that they're travelers, and you know maybe some of them are homebodies. I don't know that we could ever explain it, but it would be actually an incredible study to do maybe with collaring and stuff if you could ever uh, figure out how to track them and... Um, I'd be real interested to see what percentage of bulls, you know, stay 
close to their home range and and which ones just go to a certain rutting grounds and then how long does it take them to go you know come back to say home ground for for the you know late hunts yeah it would be really interesting and like I said i don't i don't have an answer either why they do it but it's just something they do and you know like you said you can count on that bull pretty much to come back and he'll rut here every year another bull we've been watching for seven years he's been back you know in the same within you know two mile radius he'll be in there yeah what are some of these um age have you guys had any of these bulls actually aged and if if you had to put a, your finger on uh, it's a little bit of a tough question but if you had to put your finger on when they're peak age for maximum antler growth uh capability do you have a sense of of how old a bull has to be in order to you said that one giant was six and a half years old but what is the magic age in your mind or you know within a two-year period what's the magic age in in my mind i would say probably between nine and eleven and what trevor um have you ever had bulls aged and you know can you think of a specific bull that was, you know, 390 that was, you know, 14, 15 years old? Or what are some of the older bulls you've heard of? We've killed one. He was 15, ended up grossing 396, and then 385. Another one, a local guy here actually found it dead. He had a big clubbed foot, and anyway, he died of natural causes. When they aged him, he was 16 plus. And we've got a couple sets off him, and my dad's biggest set off him, we figure he was around 14 to 15, and that set grosses 422, and that's 413. Wow. So, you know, at that age, he's still that big. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And how much, um, you know, being able to have those bulls sheds year after year, or certainly, you know, multiple sets, what is the main as a bull's progressing um once they get a certain age do you see their mass incrementally drastically going up or does it just you know start to slowly edge out what do you see the main differences mainly in the antler either configurations or um you know do their points all of a sudden just get longer or does just everything in general just kind of inch out here it's just kind of everything inches out. You know, I I've heard of other guys saying, you know, their bulls seem to start putting on mass and then point length, but ours just kind of, you know, everything throughout starts slowly getting bigger. And in 2012, we killed a big muzzleloader bull. And anyway, when the guy shot it, when I was looking at the bull, I could see these points sticking up the bottom underneath that bull and anyway it was a set of sheds from the year before no way right where you right, right. where you killed him you yeah. found your sheds mm-hmm. and that's incredible yeah and that bull he put on about 45 inches in one year wow that is that is phenomenal um that kind of stuff just interests me like crazy that that's amazing stuff uh switching gears a little bit uh trevor um some of your tactics during the archery hunt, uh, you said you do a lot of glassing. Uh, you do do uh, calling. Um, do you like to call a lot or um, do you stock more? Or what percentage do you call and what percentage do you stock? 
We stock definitely a lot more. You know, I'd probably say 75 to 80%. You know, Colin, it's just really tough here. You know, I'm sure everywhere, you know, people want to get out and call them. And, you know, bulls, you know, they catch on a little bit and they know. And just the bad thing is when you're calling, if it ain't working now, they're expecting something to be over there. You know, they're continuing to look. You're wondering what, what it is, where it's at. So we try to get in as silent as we can and just, you know, head them off. Or if you got them better, just get in close and wait for them to stand up. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, if you have to call, call. But, uh, you know, stalking in close is usually a deadly tactic. And if they're if they're going on their own, usually you can get in enough to at least see them to see if it's a bull you want to go after. Um, on the archery hunts, as far as your bull to cow ratio, I mean, is it, What's a typical morning, let's say, in one of your good units? I mean, are you hearing like four or five bulls bugling, or are you hearing, you know, 12 to 15 bulls bugling? When it's going good, you can hear, you know, 10 or more. You know, you get a couple areas that they like. You know, like I said, you can get to a big bull, and bulls are just going crazy. Other ones, you know, you can – it just depends on the area itself. You might only hear, you know, like I said, three or four just depending on the area and the time of year as far as later on in the rut or early is dependent on, you know, how, how well they're going. Sure. Sure. And, and in Nevada, um, are there also landowner tags or conservation permits or is there any way for people to circumvent the draw or is it a strictly draw only state? There are landowner tags available. There are, Pretty tough to get. There ain't a whole lot of them. You know, in that area 111, there's roughly, just throwing out a number, close, probably 10, 10 to 12 available. And then in 22, maybe, you know, 8, 8 or 10. And that's it for the hunt. So it's it's fairly limited. Um, and then the late hunts, um, shifting gears on the late hunts, uh, you know, Arizona, it seems though our antlers are broken up pretty bad. But one thing I notice about Nevada, it seems like your antlers don't break as bad as ours. Seems like you guys actually have some really good late hunting and, and actually kill some really good bulls. Can you expand on that? Yeah, our late hunts, they're pretty good as far as, like you said, you're not getting a whole lot of them broke. And most of the ones you see, too, though, are because we're passing them broken ones. You know, we do get, get them broke up, but, you know, we feel it's, it's a shame to take a giant bull that's busted, you know. I mean, he don't get the credit he deserves and just kind of save him for next year and hopefully you can catch him when he's good. Our late hunts, last year we killed two giant ones, both grossed, you know, around 395 in the late hunts, and fortunately they weren't broke at all, so we were good in that that part of it. Were both of those clean sixes or what were their configurations? One's a typical seven and then another one's a non-typical six, seven with the crown point in between the G4, G5. Nice. And is it, give me an idea of, of Nevada bulls, you know, uh, is it half and half between non-typicals and typicals or is it, you know, 25% or non-typicals? What's your, what's your ratio would you, if you had to throw out a guess? Yeah, it's definitely more typicals than non-typicals. And a lot of our non-typicals too, it's usually just one point, you know, we're not getting a whole bunch of extras for the most part. You'll get the select few, but most of it, 
is probably, you know, 70% typical with, you know, 40% being non-typical. And I'd say you, out of them too, probably only 15% of them have more than one point. Gotcha. And, um, Trevor, what's the best way for my listeners to, um, uh, follow you on your website or your, um, I don't know, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook. Can you give me all the different ways, uh, where, where the listeners can find you? Uh, on Instagram, just search Bull Ridge Guide Service. Same thing with Facebook. We have a Facebook page at Bull Ridge Guide Service. And then YouTube, it's, um, you could search Bull Ridge Guide Service as well. And continuing to work on videos, it's, not necessarily hard, but you got tons of cards and trying to put everything together. So we just put up a new one last night and a lot of people like it on YouTube and it's getting a good response. Great. Yeah. I enjoy um, following your stuff and, um, you know, Nevada, uh, unfortunately it's not a state that I apply for a long time ago. I, I just didn't get in that game. And so I've always felt like I'm behind uh, maybe one of these years I'll have to um, purchase a landowner tag or something. Um, but it sounds like you guys have phenomenal hunting, and I've watched uh, you know the success of your your guide service for years. Um, talk a little bit about uh, your sub guides and how many you have, and and um, you know you you mentioned you killed 27 bulls last year. That's that's a fantastic uh, feat. And um, talk about your sub guides a little bit and. Um, you know, do you cover all the units or what, you know, what are your specialties? Okay, but first, uh, going back to the draw, when you were talking about, you know, you felt you didn't get in, but Nevada, the way it's set up, you could draw just as easy as someone with five points if it's your first year. Is that right? Yeah, it's, you know, it's a lottery system, but you have bonus points, but still your bonus points, like, say, because they're squared. Yeah. So say if you got, you know five points you know and they square them so you got 25 chances but that's only to get one draw number oh i understand so actually everybody has a chance but your 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 chances are more weighted because of the squared system but you still have a ticket in draw yep so your one chance might get a lower draw number than my 25 or my you know 10 or whatever so in essence the way it works is and just trying to simplify it if you have five and you, you square it, say you're at 25, so you have 25 tickets in where maybe I just have one, but that means that still, it gives you better odds, but that I could literally draw my first year out. Yep. Yeah, that's like last year, we um, Dylan, in the draw, there was four non-resident tags available. It was his very first year of playing, and he drew one of four tags. Goodness. So it, it's and, really just about luck. That's that's unbelievable, and I know the outfitter draw is already passed, but how much better of an odds does that give you if you apply with an outfitter? Um, the odds go up pretty good, but it's only for deer, so the elk and okay. all the other big game are, you know, just a regular draw for the guys. Okay, okay, that makes sense. Um, and then back to your, um, that's a great point. I'm glad you brought that up. And then back to your guide service and the sub guides and stuff you have, uh, in order to kill 27 bulls, you you must have some good guys that work for you. Yeah. I mean, our guys are great and it's guys that have been hunting with us, guiding with us for, you know, some of them close to 10, 15 years, you know, the newest guys are still, you know, four years in and we don't 
take a lot of people as far as just, hey, do you want to guide and come do it? You know, it's our guys are very experienced. They're all hunters themselves. You know, we've all killed great animals ourselves and to be able to know what it takes to get someone else their once in a lifetime trophy. There's, yeah. you know, me. Well, first of all, there was my dad and he's got four brothers. So that's where the Marx brothers came in, you know, all of them. And then myself, my other cousin, Cody, and another one of my uncle's nephews guides, and then a couple other friends and then other family friends that do it. And we got about 15 guys total. Most of the time, you know, during the hunts, we'll take, you know, usually about maybe just four or five guys in the first week and then try to get another guy with them so they at least have two guys, you know, to help if anything goes wrong or just, you know, to help out spotting. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. Um, can you talk, uh, a little bit and then we'll wrap this up. Um, but talk to me a little bit about the gear that you use as far as you do a lot of glassing as well as I do. Um, you know, what, what binoculars do you like? Uh, what, what are around your neck at all times? And then maybe some of the long range glass or what are you using, uh, besides your binoculars around your neck and, you know, are you using a tripod, uh, that kind of thing? Yeah, definitely. You know, a tripod to me, I feel is a must, you know, lots of guys, you know, you get up on the hill, you kind of wind it anyway. And just to throw a tripod down and steady your, you know, is insurmountable and giving you that extra edge, I feel to finding them. But we, um, got a lot of Leica, Sororsky, um optolith is a really good one you know a lot not a lot of people got that but my uncle's got one and that helps a lot and i just picked up a new cabela scope and i'm actually really liking it it's made by Miopta, and it's it's definitely to me seems clearer than my leica does interesting yeah Interesting. And and uh, what about digiscoping? Uh, what's your go-to setup for getting a lot of your video and your pictures? Um, a lot of it, I'm just using a point-and-shoot Canon, and I just I made an adapter out of PVC okay. pipe for you know a dollar something, and that it seems to work good. Interesting. And then uh, with that point-and-shoot Canon, um, you're uh, at full zoom, I assume, when you're um, taking video and pictures. Yeah. Like your full zoom with the camera, that works best so you don't have the vignetting with the ring, the black ring? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, that's um, that's awesome. Uh, you know, we'll, I'll have to have you on again uh, to talk about mule deer and, and, and maybe some of the other hunts you do. I think we covered a lot of ground today on the elk and um, got a good insight for what Bull Ridge Guide Service does. Um I guess I would ask you one last question in that, what is it that makes you do what you do? I mean, try and explain to me the fire in your belly to get up and do the things you do. What is it that makes you do that? Well, you being a guide as well, you obviously know we don't do it for the money. You know, people think think it's, you know, a money-making business and it's not, you know. I mean, we do it because we love it, you know. I mean, it's something that, you know, like I said, it's hard to describe, you know, but people who have a passion for other things, I mean, our passion is just as deep and our drive is just as strong as anyone else to do what they want to succeed in. 
you know, you get up day in, day out, you know, one year, I think I hunted 106 straight days every day, you know, between four and five o'clock getting up and just to be out there and to know, to me, I take a lot of pride in it as far as knowing that you could do it as far as not needing anyone else or, you know, a hand in it as far as just, I don't know, it's hard to describe. No, I, I, yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, oftentimes it becomes a grind, but you know, I, I, I know what you're saying. There's those that can grind and there's those that can't. And, you know, I, I think, uh, 106 days in the field, not having ever met you, but having talked to you on the phone, I'm betting that you're just as fired up on the 106th day as you were on the first. And, you know, the only thing that drives that, like what you said, is passion. And, and um, that's not something you either have it or you don't. And um, you either have that mentality to grind and to, you know, ra- you know, rain, shine, wind, snow, it doesn't matter. You get up and you go, go, go. And, um, you know, I, I think I still have that fire in my belly. And it sounds like obviously you do too. And, you know, I think that's what drives a lot of people to, to success in a lot of things. And, um, you know, you're right in the fact that guiding is not a, you know, extremely lucrative thing. But if, if you love it and it's in your heart and in your soul, um, you know, you can be successful monetarily. That That's not always the great judge of success, but doing what you love to do uh, is, is very important. And you hit the nail right on the head. Um Trevor, it's been an awesome uh, time spending here with you. I'm glad you were able to join us. I actually look forward to really speaking with you again. Maybe we can cover mule deer and and, and lion hunting and maybe just some other topics that you want to talk about as well. Um, I keep telling you one last question. Uh, What's your thoughts on kind of this craze that we have going on on fitness and you know, shirtless selfies and you know what I'm talking about in the hunting and, you know, feel free if, if, you know, you don't want to go into it, but, um, what's your thoughts as far as some of the trends that you're seeing, you know, is it good for hunting or is it just, uh, everybody's different and they're entitled to do what they want or I, you know, somewhat to me it, on on some days I think you know why you know why do they have to make this into a fitness thing when if you're going to be a good hunter you're going to be fit regardless if you want to be good at something you have to be able to go you know and then on other days I think you know maybe people are taking it too far and putting too much of an emphasis on fitness and that's it I think there's too much of an emphasis on it you know and I got we got into it you know I brought it up and I'm you know, I speak candidly about it that I see a lot of overhype on it. You know, not saying that it's not good to be fit. Of course, you know, you want to be fit, but there's other options to do that. You know, you can take different avenues for fitness. It doesn't necessarily have to be in the gym hitting the weights, you know, with a six pack or, you know, the biggest arms. But as long as you can get up and down the mountain, that's what it comes down to. And like you said, a lot of guys, you know, if you want to 
take shirtless selfies or whatnot, that's fine. You know, I mean, I'm all for if somebody betters themselves and they're happy for it, by all means, you know, put it out there, you know, be happy with what you did with yourself, you know, and I don't, I don't have a problem with that, but I do think there is a lot of, a lot of overhype with the people that do stress on the fitness, this and that, you know, I've seen a lot bigger and better animals and I guess that necessarily doesn't always mean that you're the better hunter if you kill the best out there but that's what everyone's shooting for you know everyone wants to kill the biggest and best out there and I've seen a lot you know bigger better animals killed with people that don't go to the gym or you know aren't you know every day trying to tell you hey you know look how big how big their biceps are yeah you know it's so as far as that I just it to me it's not a necessity for hunting just like i was saying you know i want to practice on my vertical for you know six months and then think i'm awesome at basketball because i could jump high you know i can't shoot i can't pass i can't dribble i can't defend but i can jump high you know there's a lot more things that go into hunting you know that if you practice doing all of them you're going to be a better hunter Yeah. I mean, I think you just absolutely nailed it. I mean, I think there's, everybody can get better in every arena, but you know, there's, there's, there's glassing, there's, you know, there's uh, tracking, there's, you know, field judging, there's, you know, shooting, there's, you know, uh, how to pack a pack efficiently and have enough, you know, rations to be out there for days on end. I mean, there's, there's a ton of stuff. And I think sometimes personally, I agree with you and the fact that, you know, the the fitness craze, while I think it's fantastic that people are getting in shape, I think there's too much emphasis on the fact that whether that makes them a good hunter or a great hunter, I think it adds. But I think, you know, maybe spend some of that time and round it out and, and work on your glassing skills or, you know, work on getting better equipment or, you know, go go work on your tracking ability or, 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 or um, you know, work on you know, sharpening a knife and knowing how to handle an animal when it gets on the ground. And, you know, they're, they're, like you said, in basketball, it's not just about who jumps the highest. There's, you know, shooting and passing and, you know, dribbling and all the fundamentals that go along with the game. So, well, that's a uh, great answer. And um, I will uh, let you go at that. And I appreciate you being on today. And um, I wish you the best of success. And now we've just got to wait here for, uh, these fuzzy antlered bulls to start growing so we can uh, get out there and start watching them. And it won't be long here. We'll have the uh, summer, summer velvet right in front of us and the whole uh, thing will start over again. So good luck with your shed hunting that you've got uh, probably right in front of you now and probably chasing a few cats around. So um, wish you the best with that. Right, well, thank you, Jay. And thanks for having me and giving me an opportunity to speak and better yet, a place for outdoorsmen to speak, you know, on your podcast. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Trevor, you take care and I look forward to speaking with you again and, um, you have a good day. Okay. Thanks for being with us. All right. Thanks. And good luck this season, my friend. All right, buddy. God bless. Thanks for listening to the J Scott outdoors, Western big game hunting and fishing podcast brought to you by GoHunt.com insider research faster, hunt more, Go to GoHunt.com forward slash insider and join today.